Now we're going to have our Bible reading, which um, comes from Leviticus 16. It's Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 to 10, and then continuing with verses 29 to 34. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, behind the curtain, in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area, with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering and to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. And then from verse 29. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or an alien living among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord you will be clean from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and all the people of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Uh, Something I'd like to read out to you, and uh, if you recognise what I'm reading out to you, do please uh, put your hand up and have a tell me what you think it is. Um, Here we go. You will not send or otherwise post unauthorised commercial communications such as spam on... You will not collect users... Content or information or otherwise access using automated means such as harvesting bots, robots, spiders or scrapers without our permission. You will not engage in unlawful multi-level marketing such as a pyramid scheme on... No... Oh, oh, yes, Rob. eBay. Very close, actually, is um, Facebook. How many of you are on Facebook? How many of you have read the terms and conditions of Facebook? (laughs) Those were the terms and conditions, which I think you all agreed that you'd read before you signed up to it. I don't want to embarrass you. But um, things like that are pretty uninteresting 
to read for most of us, aren't they? And for many of us, the book of Leviticus is difficult and uninteresting to read. Um, I won't embarrass you by asking you how many have read the book straight through. Um, If I were to ask you how many have enjoyed reading the book straight through, I'm sure it would be less. But why is it that we find such writing difficult? Because it's basically the type of writing that is being used. We've started a sermon series here entitled Route 66. 66, in case you're not aware, is the number of books in the Bible. Um, And books that you may find useful as we go through this series are available in the book room. Um, It's a book produced by Krish Kandaya, um, available at the the knockdown price of £6. We've got eight sermons in this series, and um, each of those sermons will be looking at a different type of writing or genre um, in the Bible. Last week, Paddy looked at narrative or stories. Um, This morning, we're looking at the law. And we have to admit that when we read law, particularly the book of Leviticus, with all its detailed instructions about uh, sacrifices, what you can and what you can't eat, um, about infectious diseases, um, it is tempting just to skip over it, isn't it? But um, it is there, there's a lot of space dedicated to it, and we have to conclude that it must be there for a reason. Why would God spend so much time on it if he didn't think it was important for us? What we're looking at this morning is three reasons I want to give you why the law is important for us today. And that is, firstly, that it tells us about God's character, that it gives us instructions for living, and it convicts us of our sin and points us to Jesus Christ. What we'll be doing as part of this series is showing how each part of the Bible, whether it's the law or the prophets or the Psalms, points to Jesus. And today we're looking at Jesus, the law keeper, how the law points to Jesus. Well, let's, um, if you've got your Bible still open, that, um, that uh, passage from Leviticus that Marion read for us, What this passage tells us about, first of all, is the character of God, and in particular his holiness, which we've been singing about this morning. But holiness is a word we use a lot, but it's sometimes difficult to understand, isn't it? What exactly do we mean by holy? Yesterday in the men's discipleship group, we were continuing to to look at the Lord's Prayer, and we came to those words, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. And we came to um, look at a number of different names used for God in the Bible. Um, the various Hebrew words, we looked at about 16 or so. Um, just to give you an example, Yahweh Jireh, the Lord will provide. Or Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals. Yahweh Makadesh, the Lord who makes holy. Well, aspects of God's character. But what is this? holiness mean? Well, there's different aspects to it, and um, let me just suggest uh, some to you um, as we look at it. First of all, there's a sense of moral purity and perfection. Habakkuk 1 says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil, talking to God. Purity. Then there's the majesty, the sovereignty, again, that we've been singing about, the fact that God is supreme over everything. And that means he's also set apart. He's unlike anything else or anyone else. A consequence of that is it's impossible to try and depict, to make an, an image of him. You know, if we were try, to try to do that, then we'll be using our human limitations to try and depict God, who is impossible to, for us 
to depict. And the result of all these different aspects of holiness is that God is unapproachable. In himself, he is unapproachable. And Leviticus 16 starts by referring to the death of two sons of Aaron, who who are told died when they approached the Lord. If you want to read about that, you can read about it in chapter 10. And uh, here we're given a warning in verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, behind the curtain, in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Aaron's given strict instructions about how he should enter the sanctuary area, the holy area. One of those is that he should wear linen. The reason why he should wear linen is linen was a very simple cloth. It's what um, slaves would have worn. Um, It's stressing the humility before this awesome God. There'll be other instructions about priests wearing ornate robes, but that is when the priests are representing God to the people. Here, they're representing people to God. And then we have the instructions, of course, for the sin and the burnt offerings that are designed to make atonement for sin. There's a sin offering for Aaron and his householders as priests. There's a sin offering for the place of worship, for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting, the altar, all of which need to be cleansed and consecrated because of the uncleanness of the people. There's two goats here. We have a, one which is sacrificed, one which takes the punishment for the sins of the people instead of them, a substitute, and the other becomes a scapegoat, one who carries the sin of the people away. I'm sure some of you will be making that link in your mind already with Jesus, one who was, became sin for us and the one who bore our sins away. We'll come on to that. But what these instructions show is just how terrible sin is to God and how it needs to be dealt with. You can't just ignore it. You can't just turn a blind eye towards it. And so these instructions are, in a way, protecting us from a holy God. As sinful human beings, we cannot come into God's presence without consequences. Um, Our middle son, Joe, was uh, born in a private hospital in Brazil, and I was allowed to be present at the birth, but there were certain uh, uh, stipulations. I'd put on all the the garb, the, uh, the, the, the hat, the mask, the gloves, the... The, the, the coat, the, the shoes, etc., etc. And um, afterwards, when I went to get changed, I went back into the changing room, got a little bit disorientated, or probably with everything that's been going on. And um, there were a couple of doors, and I wasn't quite sure which door to go back into with my outside clothes. Of course, I chose the wrong door, walked back into this sterile hospital, and uh, it was almost something like out of Monsters, Inc., when the alarms start going off and people whisk you out very quickly before you contaminate the sterility of that environment. God is a holy God, and we can only come into his presence under certain conditions. And the fact that the law depicts the holiness of God is demonstrated by the ark, which the children will be looking at this morning. The ark contains the key laws, the Ten Commandments. They are located in the most holy place, we're told here behind the curtain. Again, the curtain which separates the holy God from sinful man. And those Ten Commandments are very useful for telling us something about God. So let's just uh, turn back briefly to a description of those in Exodus chapter 20. 
And what we see here is what is important to God. It's page 77, 78. Um, One of those things is that we need to worship him above other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. It's an exclusive commitment. We're told to make no images of God um, that we talked about earlier. We're told not to misuse his name. We're told to keep the Sabbath holy. We're told also what God hates, the fact that he hates murder and lies and coveting and adultery and slander. But a lot of people think who are not Christians that these Ten Commandments were given as some sort of test. You know, you pass all these and um, you get into heaven. Well, maybe if you get, you know, 75% pass mark, you might, you might be allowed in. But have a look at how they're introduced in verse 2. Because there it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Which brings us on to our next point, that the law is a gift from God that helps us know how to live. The context of these commandments is that God has rescued the Israelites by his grace, by his kindness. And a word that we often find in the Bible is redeemed them. He's brought them back from slavery. And so now they are privileged to be his people. It's not like a rescue field for some people where um, they're rescued from one dictator only to be ruled over by another. Um, as our guests from Romania were explaining recently, Ceausescu's gone, yes, but you know, what's in his place? A whole lot of other corrupt leaders. No, this is now belonging to someone who's going to care for them, who's going to look after them and love them. God is the one who's rescued the people of Israel. He's showed them mercy even before he gives them these commandments, these instructions for living. And having been rescued in that way, surely there's an incentive for them to, to want to follow them because they know they are for their their own good. So when God gives his people laws, they're to help them live in a way which is best for them. Designed by somebody who knows how we are made, who knows how we think, who knows how we are tempted to destroy our lives. The road um, at the end of uh, Long Crendon, which we live, um, goes all the way to Bicester. It's about 10 miles or so away. It's quite a, quite a hilly and windy road. I'm sure many of you have uh, travelled it many times. Uh, many of you come every Sunday along that road. It uh, particularly attracts the bikers on a Saturday afternoon. Um, but during the week, uh, during rush hour particularly, you'll see a lorry coming up the hill, coming into the village, and it'll be behind that lorry a whole queue of cars. Um, you look at the, the faces on those drivers, and they're usually fairly frustrated and irritated. They've been stuck behind that lorry probably for 10 miles. Um, but of course, along that road, there's a thick white line saying, don't overtake. This is a dangerous road to overtake on. But of course, we don't like rules. We don't like them, but we forget that sometimes they are there for our good. Because on that road is also a sign which says the number of accidents and casualties in the past year, which shows why it is important to keep the law. It's there for our good. Well, okay, you may say that's... um, that's all well and good for the Ten Commandments. Yeah, we do try and follow them. But what about all those other strange laws in the Old Testament? All that stuff about um, preparing food and sacrifices and everything else. The one helpful way of looking at the Old Testament laws, and uh, Chris brings that out in his book, is under three categories. Uh, ceremonial, civil and moral. Ceremonial laws are 
those that are related to the corporate worship of Israel, how they approached God, and those are the laws which include um, rules to do with the temple, the priesthood, the, the sacrifices. And Leviticus 16 is an example of the ceremonial laws. Now, these are no longer applicable because, as we've seen, they have been replaced by a real person. These laws here pointed to the person who has enabled us to approach God in him. Jesus now is the temple, he's the priest, he's the sacrifice. Then there are the civil laws which have to do with the government of Israel as a a nation, a wholly separated people, distinct from the nations around them, who had a privileged relationship with God but ultimately who are meant to be a blessing to, to all nations. But as, kingdom, as Jesus came, he opened the kingdom of heaven to all Jews and Gentiles. It wasn't limited to the Jewish nation. He sent his disciples out into all nations to baptise them. And so now that sense of uh, civil law again has been replaced because we're now the church of which Jesus is the head. And then finally there are the moral laws and these are the laws that are eternally valid, not limited to a point in time, because these reflect, as we've seen already, God's character. Um, And the Ten Commandments are an obvious example of those moral laws. But there's another problem, isn't there? Because, well, okay, you may talk about the different distinctions and which are now valid still, but how do we keep them? I mean, how can we possibly keep all these laws? Which is answered by our third point, that the law convicts us of sin and points us to Jesus. Because the truth is we can't keep those laws, can we? Even if we can say that, well, we've never murdered, we've never stolen. Can any of us say we've never lied or that we've always honoured our father and mother? That we've not worshipped other gods, whether it may be the gods of materialism or, or hedonism. And even with the laws like murder and adultery, Jesus took them further and he said, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Or you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But that's the point. If we didn't have the law, we wouldn't know that we've fallen short of God's standards. The good thing is that having realised that, having realised that we can never perfectly keep those laws, having appreciated our sin, we don't need to remain discouraged and be fed up and feel guilty because we have Jesus Christ. And when Jesus came, he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. Jesus came to fulfil the law. Now, what what does that mean? What does it mean to fulfil the law? There's a couple of things I think it means. First of all, I think it means that he kept the law. He kept it perfectly. He led a morally perfect life. Jesus, the law keeper. He didn't just create a set of laws and say, you know, off you go, get on with it. No, he came down to this earth, lived the life of a human, lived the life in which he was tempted by um, sin, but never succumbed. To it. He showed how you can work out the, the values and the principles of the law in daily human living. He was an example to us. But more importantly, Jesus achieved the purpose of the law. 
Remember what those ceremonial laws were about? It was so that the Israelites could come into the presence of a holy God. But as we saw earlier with the children, those ceremonial laws were just a a model, a, a blueprint for the real thing, for Jesus himself. We saw images, plans of the, the building projects, pretty impressive in themselves, but nothing compared to the real thing. The people of Israel had a model which helped them understand the concept of sin, which helped them understand God's holiness and enabled them through the high priest to approach God on their behalf. But that was replaced by Jesus. The sacrifices of animals pointed to the sacrifice of a perfect human one who was able to atone for our sins. And Hebrews 10 sums it up very well. Let's go back to Hebrews 10 that we uh, saw earlier on the screen. Page 1207, where it says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Going on to verse 10. Now we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again, He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. If it's impossible for us in our own strength to keep God's laws, then we have two options. One, we either carry on with the Old Testament system of uh, sacrifices, a high priest interceding for us, or we rely on a once-for-all perfect sacrifice by someone who can keep those laws. Someone whose sacrifice will be valid for all humankind. Such a person would remove once and for all that barrier that exists between us and God and allow each of us to enter the presence of God. There's one person who is fully God and fully man who can do that, and that is Jesus And the result is in verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. I know there'll be people here this morning who'll be hearing this for the first time, who've never really appreciated or understood this incredible truth. And we we won't fully appreciate it unless we grasp the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humankind. But even if we do appreciate the holiness of God, it's still possible to miss the point of the privilege of access to that holy God. And I think in many ways the the Catholic Church and parts of the Anglican Church have missed that. They they still worship a holy God, but they still think we have to come to him through a priest, a priest dressed in robes. 
But the Bible tells us each one of us is a priest, each one of us can personally approach God through our great high priest, Jesus Christ himself. And so what we're about to celebrate now in the Lord's Supper is that we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, that, that curtain that symbolised the separation of God from man was torn from top to bottom so that anyone who trusts in the death of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins is made holy and can come into his presence. You're all invited to come. Are you going to accept that invitation? Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your holiness. We praise you that even though we don't deserve, can't possibly come into your presence because you are sinless. Yet you've made it possible through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. That invitation you've extended to all. And we do pray that uh, if there are those here who haven't accept that invitation that you would enable them to do so and for those of us who've lost maybe the sense of your holiness a sense of the privilege that it is to to come into your presence and approach you we pray that you'd fill us again with a wonder and an awe at what you've done in Jesus name Amen